If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Galatians. In the New Testament, the book of Galatians, we're going to be in chapter chapter 2. While you're doing that, I'll go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, Sovereign, King and Ruler, Creator of all things, we ask that you would make yourself known in a mighty way, and in your power, and through our weakness, and in your word, you would glorify yourself. Amen. Alright, I'll do my best to not ostracize all of you before we get started, but... If you aren't alive, go ahead and raise your hand. If you're alive, go ahead. Some indecisiveness out of the back corner there. Dirty, rotten liars. Each and every one of you. Don't you know that? Look at our text here in Galatians chapter 2 here. This is what we're going to see in our text today. We think we're alive. We have this a body we're ambulating and moving around in. And we think we're alive. But no, no, no. What we're going to see is that true life is only found in Christ. Look at our text here. Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live, in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, if that is true, then Christ died for no purpose. So the main idea here, what we're going to be driving home, is that your life is only in Christ. Not in anything else. It's not as though you have a great life, an awesome career, you're making headway, you're going to make it. Just in 27 more years, you're going to have the mortgage paid off, it'll be great. No, it's not as though you have that and then you add Christ on top of it. All of that is rubbish and unfulfilling and it's designed to be that way. So that your hearts would be restless and craving the one who will give you true life. And that is Christ and Christ alone. So your life is only, not partially, but only in Christ. So we're going to be looking at, well, death in Christ, our death in Christ. And then finally, or next, we're going to be looking at life in Christ. And then finally, the grace of God. So as we've been going through the, the books of the Bible here, I want you I help, want to help reframe here of what we're attempting to do. This is not just a Bible overview that we're doing so we can get a better understanding of the Bible and we kind of go book by book by book. That's not it. So we're not treating these as an aggregate, separate little stones. And we look at this book, because we look at Matthew, and then we'll look at Mark, and then we look at Luke, and then we'll look at John. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing is seeing how all of these things orient themselves and are pointing towards Christ. So we began in Genesis, and we're working all of our way through this whole seemingly cacophony, but all absolutely unified body of the Bible is all pointing towards Christ. 
So when we look at Galatians, we're not just looking at Galatians, but we're going to be asking ourselves, how does this fit in line with the whole story and narrative that God has given us through Scripture to see how this is revealing Christ in a way that would have been lacking had the book not been there. So, before anything happened, God existed in eternity past. One God, the three persons, existing in perfect unity, holiness, justice, and love, ascribing to each one another all of the glory that was due unto them, but so that others might ascribe to him the glory that he is due, he created the world. That trees would sway and mountains would shoot up and volcanoes would erupt and waves would dance all into his glory. For they were made by him and for him and through him. And then on the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve. But he just didn't make them. He made them in his image so that they would represent him here on earth. Then the unthinkable thing happened. This perfect God who's lived in inseparable proximity had to separate himself then from man, but he didn't move. He cast Adam and Eve out because of their sin. The sin that was within them. And then, fast forward quite a bit, 4,000 years later, there's a pagan idolater named Abram living in the land of Ur. And God calls to him and tells him to walk. And literally, at that moment, he begins walking by faith. Where is he going to go? He doesn't know, but he's just told that he's supposed to leave Ur. So what does he do? He's obedient to God. And God gives him this promise in Genesis 12. He says, I will make of you... I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Then in verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, Take uh, to your offspring, singular, not plural, singular, to your offspring I will give this land. So there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So we have creation and this exile of Adam and Eve. Then Abram, then fast forward several hundred more years. Now you have the children of Abraham who have grown into a whole nation. He was an old man without any children. Now he has a whole nation of his lineage. And through the mighty hand of God, God has redeemed them and brought them out of Egypt. And he brings them to Mount Sinai where they have received the law. And the law for them is this outline of how are we supposed to live? We knew what we were supposed to do in slavery. We did what we were told. The taskmasters told us what to do, when to rise, when to go to bed. Now, how do we live as a people of God, as a nation, and God gave them the law. Here's the dilemma with the law, though. It's not written internally, it's written externally. It's not even written on anything that's living, it's written on a stone. And all it does is point out when you've fallen short, but it gives you no ability to overcome it. It's, it's, it's a, like a, a nagging spouse, you know. 
Oh, the, the house isn't clean. Oh, the outside's dirty. You know, mow the yard. Well, you're getting home too late. Well, the, you know, the kids aren't ready for bed. It gives you no ability to do anything. It just points out where you are failing. And that's the law. So how then are these history-shaping promises that God will bless through Abraham the whole entire world, how is that supposed to come? Is that going to come through the law, through their sheer obedience? Just obey, obey, obey when you can't and you don't really want to? Abraham believed and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. It wasn't supposed to come through the law. That was never the intent of the law. Rather, law is supposed to be a sledgehammer to break you apart and drive you to the cross, to remind you of your sinful state that we don't we don't love God as we're supposed to, as we're supposed to. We don't love our neighbors as ourselves. We don't give generously to others. Knowing that God is the giver of all good things. But what do we do? Well, we create idols. Mostly of ourselves now. We covet most everything that our neighbors have. So here then is the purpose of the law. It breaks us apart. And holds us as a captive. Holds us captive and it's to be a guardian to lead us to something greater. And that something greater is Christ. But breaks you down and shows you that you can't do it. Going back to Adam and Eve being cast out of the garden. You can't come back into the garden by yourself. You need someone who will do it for you. So then here's the dilemma of these churches that's going on where Paul is writing this, this letter. All of that backdrop, all of that story is the backdrop here. So Paul plants all these churches... And you have a bunch of uh, formerly Jewish people and pagan idolaters coming then and congregating together. Paul plants these churches, and then he heads off. He hits every, He comes back to them on his other missionary journeys. But what are you supposed to do? How are you supposed to live? Well, you live by the law, of course, Right? That's the standard. So yeah, you can have your gospel. That's great, Paul. You'll have your gospel. Then after Paul leaves, there's these Judaizers or agitators who come in and say, yes, you can have your gospel. Good. Paul was right about that. But how do you know how to live? You need the law. You need something to obey. What Christ did wasn't enough is inherently what they're saying. So what does Paul tell them? Verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And these these simple words have a profound meaning. In English it says, I have been crucified with Christ. We switch it. In the Greek it's with Christ. It's fronted. Just to give more emphasis even to Christ. With Christ, I have been crucified. Is how it's coming out, and it's it's this. The tense of the verb is is this um, perfect passive. If that does anything for you, so it's it's passive in that we we are not the ones doing it. We are passive in the being crucified, and it's it's complete. The action is complete. It's not going to be ongoing again and again and again. But no, the action is complete. 
I have nothing to add to it while it was happening. Now that it's done, I certainly have nothing else to add to it by trying to keep the law. So what exactly is Paul saying here, though? Okay, what is he saying, though? He's not, what is, obviously he's not saying he was actually one of the robbers. You guys didn't know this, but I was one of the two robbers on the cross back outside of Jerusalem. No, he's not saying that in this physical sense, but it's true in this spiritual sense. That you're afraid of my Christian conduct without the law. If you're afraid of that, Paul says, I don't need the law anymore. I have Christ. I don't need the law. I have Christ. And you might think that you need these rules to help shape the way that you live. But I've been crucified with Christ. I have something far greater than that. So Luther, our good friend, when in doubt, just quote Luther or Augustine, you'll be all right. Said the law, the law was abolished. He says, as far as I'm concerned, when it has driven me to the arms of Christ. Does the law have a purpose? Absolutely. It's to show you that you can't do it. And it drives you to the arms of Christ, helpless, broken. And there in the loving arms of Christ, you're picked up and you're healed and you're made whole and you are given life. So to be crucified with Christ then is to be dead to the law. It is to be dead to the world and also to be dead to sin. And one of the commentators put it this way. He said, think about it. When Christ was dead, he had no sense of the world around him. And humanly speaking, in the same way, when we are crucified with Christ, we have no sense of the world and all of its passions around us. All of our pride of life, all of our evil, evil and horrible passions, they are now dead. So Paul is fleshing out all of the implications here of the cross. What does it mean? What does it mean? As you begin to understand, it's not enough to just objectively look at Christ crucified and be able to stand back and know that that's now enough. No, what Paul is saying, you have to also realize that it's not just Christ that was crucified. You can't stay back and be neutral about it. For to understand that Christ was crucified is to also know that you yourself are crucified with him upon that cross. All right. So, Paul, we see what you're saying here. That you're crucified. Then again, here you are, writing a letter. I see that you're alive in some sense. What's happening here? And then we get to the, the, the heart of the whole matter here. Let's go back to our verses here. We'll just do verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who has given himself, or who has loved me and given himself for me. See here in the life of Christ, the seeds have fallen off of our thistle. And up have come these beautiful flowers. So you can rejoice in the fact that you are dead. And you are no longer able to live. But it is only Christ who lives in you. 
So when Christ's death is your death, then naturally it flows that his life will also be your life. So just as grammar indicated that the, the crucifixion or, or being crucified with Christ is done, it's complete. So it is ongoing. Our life with Christ, it's not complete, but it is ongoing. So now, until we come home to glory, yes, we are not, we are now in the flesh, of course. We are not after the flesh. And the things of the flesh. So alive with Christ. What does it even mean? Christ lives in me. It brings you to the place when you should begin to question everything around you and everything you've ever thought. Think about it. If you've gone from death to life, but your physical body and everything around you hasn't really changed. It begins to question. It brings brings you to the place where you begin to question and to think beyond what you see. Sure, the the passing things of this world they have the physical things of this world they have they have some, some value. Of course, God God said, God saw all that He made and it was very good. He said. But when you put them on the scales and the opposite side isn't physical things of this world that are passing and fleeting, but eternal things. And eternity, then the scales obviously tip and show you what is much more important. For to have Christ to be alive in you is to have a life that cannot be lost. It cannot be taken and it cannot be crucified again, thank goodness. It is eternal life that is above all accusations. It is full of glory and hope and is inseparably intertwined with the life of Christ who shall reign forever and ever. I hope you see that this brings you freedom. That your life is not then a summation of your abilities. Your life is not just the children that you have. It's not your spouse or your singleness or your sorrow, your shame or your dreadful past. You don't want a life whose spring is from within. You don't want that and you know it. Because when you look inside of you, it's dreadful. It's dreadful. But if you're in Christ, you have the wellspring of life coming from Christ who is the gate and the narrow path that will lead us directly to the celestial city, whose foundations are built upon eternity. But the one who is the bread of life, our life is the one who is the light of the world, who is the resurrection and the life, who is the good shepherd, he is the way, the truth, and the life. And to have life in Christ to live out the reality that He is the vine and we are the branches. That all of our sustenance, all of our life, everything that we need to live is flowing directly from Him. And apart from Him, we can do nothing. And apart from Him, we have no life. So then how are we connected? Okay, so if He is the vine and we are the branches, if He is the one in whom we have life, how are we who are dead connected to this? It all happens by faith. 
The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This connection between us and our death and our sin to this eternal life-giving Son of God is faith. Faith is a conduit through which this grace, this unmerited love of God is able to come to us and to those who believe. It's not of our good works. It's not of anything like that. It's not of our birth. It's not of our tithing. It's not of our efforts. Our Bible study. Or as Paul would tell them, it's not about keeping the law. It's only through faith that we have this union with Christ. And here's the amazing thing. When we have this union with Christ, we look at Christ and say all of His victory, all of His glory, all of His righteousness, that is His right standing with God the Father, all of that is ours. And then He looks at us and pleads before the Father and says, all of their sin, all of their shame, all of their sorrow, is mine. And that's what you have through faith. Now, perhaps you keep hearing us mention the law, the law, the law, and you begin to think that, well, there's no relevance here to you because you're not, your, your conscience isn't riddled with guilt if you, you know, if you're not staying away from pork or you don't, you know, find a way to live in a booth for seven days of a year. Or uh, you're not worried about mixing two kinds of fabric or anything like that. But I would say this. The law did have those things. But how was it often used? In a communal sense, it was used as a, for better or for worse, it was used as a spiritual marker. Where are you at spiritually? These external things, how can we try to evaluate where you are in your heart when you're standing before God? And we do the same thing. Oh, you have to be a part of a community group, don't you? That's what godly people do. Oh, you're leaving. You're not even going to the Pollock. Well, why didn't you go to the Pollock? We didn't see you at the Pollock class. I'm sorry. I just wanted to go after church. It was... We have these same markers in and of ourselves. Oh no, you have to read the Bible. You know, it's January 2nd and you're already two days behind on your Bible reading program. Or you have to have a lot of kids and you have to homeschool them and, you know, put yourself in this social purgatory for 15 years while you homeschool all of your kids. That's the mark of godliness. Don't you know that? Of course you do. So sad, but it's true. So we have to be careful to to remind ourselves. Yes, maybe they're good and maybe they're well-intentioned, but these have nothing to do with your standing before God. We can't add these on, even though they're well-intentioned, to our life and a life in Christ that is upon faith and belief and trust in Him and Him alone. So this is what brings us to land here at verse 21. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. A right standing with God can only come through the grace of God. It cannot be built upon the foundation of our own merit, for the grace of God and the merit of men have nothing to do with each other. Nothing. So Paul is making this argument 
that if you can have right standing with God through your own strength, through your own goodness, then the grace of God is meaningless. Because you should just do it this way. And if the grace of God is meaningless, then Christ coming and dying on the cross, it, it had no relevance, it had no purpose. If you could do it on your own, just do it on your own. It's not like it's, Christ is this backup plan, you know. No, no. You come to redeem us. Not to be a backup plan in case our own goodness falls short. So then what do we do? All right, so we have all of this. So we've been crucified with Christ. Our death is in Christ. Our life is in Christ alone. And it has nothing to do with our goodness whatsoever. Because if it did, then Christ and God's eternal plan was foolishness. Because, he, whoa, surprise to him, I'm actually a good person. It doesn't work that way. So if our life is only in Christ and in Christ alone, what do we do? Well, Paul gives us some other examples here in Galatians. Well, the first thing we do here, there's only three. First thing we do, stand firm. This is the necessity. Go to chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. Before you know it, pride will begin to rise up and you think that you're good enough because you're doing your daily Bible reading plan. You're staying for potluck. You're going every community group. I'm even hosting a community group now. And you begin to have this spiritual pride rising up within you. You're thinking you're actually not that bad or you're cut from the, the, the other cloth and that you think... You have this self-doubt and you begin to think that you must try harder and harder and harder. These things will creep in on you, but you have to stand firm and know that your life and your freedom is only in the life of Christ. And that is it. It can come by no other means. It is the most joyous and the safest place to be is in your freedom in Christ. All right, so stand firm. That's the necessity. Number two, how do we do this? What does this look like? Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. That's the ideal. Chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Chapter 5, verse 25. But if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So what do we do then? All these, these spiritual markers are pushed to the side because we know our life is only in Christ. How then do we live? What do we do? Well, Paul tells him, you don't need these training wheels anymore of these spiritual markers or the law. You don't need that. For you've been crucified with Christ and you have the spirit of the living God within you. So oftentimes we'll, we will be well, well intended, but we have to be careful in how we communicate these things. It's not as though you should do them, but we think that they would be beneficial to your life, to your spiritual soul. And being part of a community group, Bible reading plan, whatever it might be. It might be evidence of your standing with God, but they are not the foundation and the basis of it. So when you walk by the Spirit then, are you free to sin? Shall we sin all the much more that grace may abound? No, heavens no. 
So when you're walking by the Spirit of God, what you're going to find yourself doing is naturally doing the very things that the law was commanding you to do. But rather than being a burden on your back that you can't keep, and a burden that just breaks you apart and drives you to Christ, you have the Spirit of the living God within you, and you find yourself naturally and joyfully doing them. Don't be surprised if the Spirit... We have a diverse group of people here. Don't be, just, don't be surprised if someone walking in the Spirit is not an absolute lockstep with how you might walk in the Spirit. It might look different. Don't judge them, but just rejoice that God is working in them and through them. All right, so we have the, the necessity of, being, of standing firm in your freedom in Christ. Either you're going to be prideful and think, I can do this, or you're going to be doubting and thinking, I can't. Do this. It's not enough. I have to try harder. Whatever way you lean, you have to stand firm in the freedom that you have when you are alive in Christ. That's the necessity. The the utopia is that we all walk in the Spirit. That would be amazing. But we have the reality, which is that we must bear one another's burdens. Ideally, we all be walking by the Spirit day after day, but the reality is that we are still in the flesh and that we will sin against one one another. So when this happens, as in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, Brothers, if anyone is caught in transgression, you are spiritual. If you're walking in the Spirit, right? You who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, so the law of Christ is fulfilled. So if you're walking in the Spirit, and a brother or your sister sins against you, you only have one option. And that is to bear their burdens as Christ has borne your burdens. So brothers and sisters, I hope you see That you are not your own. That you have no life and you have nothing apart from Christ. You have nothing apart from Christ. But in Him, you have everything. So come to the cross. Lash yourself to the cross. Come to the cross. Cling to the cross. So that you may no longer live by your own works. But that Christ may live in you. Let us pray. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are spiritual beggars. Show us our wretched condition apart from you, that we might rejoice in you all the much more, knowing that everything that we could ever imagine we have in your Son. And until the day that we see your Son face to face in glory, God, we ask that you would keep us and hold us fast. That we who are of faith would not waver in doubt, but that we would walk in freedom and walk in the Spirit. And God, that we as a church would bear one another's burdens, exemplifying the life of your Son. Amen. Amen.